Kiora, and welcome to Walking the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your hosts. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining us today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Hi everyone, welcome back. It's really great to have you all listening again and especially big welcome to all new listeners. Today I have a guest, one who found that he had to alter his paradigm on deeply held beliefs he had for over 30 years. When he did this, he found answers to questions that had bothered him for all that time. Altering his paradigm and perspective has taken him on a journey that he never would have anticipated. He took the red pole and saw how deep this all went. But the question is, are you willing to walk with us into this part of the Shadowlands and see what awaits us there? Then let's begin. Born in Buckinghamshire, England, my guest Paul Anthony Wallace enjoyed periods of life in Bath, Nottingham, Portsmouth and London. As a youth, he commuted for a 10-year period between the United Kingdom and Canada, later settling in Australia. His travels have included horse trekking in the depths of the Grand Canyon and the heights of the Himalayas, swimming in the Amazon, parachuting in Australia and surviving a charging rhinoceros in Zambia, along with more peaceful pilgrimages to Egypt, Zimbabwe, France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand and Kashmir. Paul's studies in languages, linguistics and theology took him to the University of Bath, England, the Machiavelli Institute in Florence, Italy, St John's College and the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom, and to Brazil's Instituto Pastoral Regional in Belém, Amazonia. In the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, Paul's work centred on establishing foundations in faith communities, being instrumental in planting six new churches in Anglican and charismatic streams. Since the late 90s, Paul has designed and delivered training for pastors of churches in the United Kingdom, Korea, West Africa and Australia. In Australia, Paul has delivered courses on the history of Christian thought and biblical hermeneutics, principles of interpreting text, and I think I mispronounced that, and has served as a community doctor in international interim ministry and as an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. Paul is a popular speaker, researcher and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. Today, his work probes world mythology and ancestral narratives for their insight into human origins and human potential. His book, Escaping from Eden, has been hailed by George Norrie as this generation's chariots of the gods. 
which to my mind is a pretty impressive comparison. Paul hosts the Paul Willis channel on YouTube and co-hosts the Fifth Kind TV in partnership with Gaia TV. His books draw on diverse sources to explore the realm of spirituality and mysticism, probing the world mythology and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins and the releasing of our potential for a better, more conscious human experience. Paul currently practices personal coaching with a few clients each year. He is a musician, a mystic, a healing practitioner in the Christian tradition, an enthusiastic chef and a barefoot walker. Paul is married with three children and lives in Australia. I would like to welcome my guest, Paul Anthony Wallace. So much for joining us today. I've been really excited, uh, excitedly looking forward to talking with you after our last chat and after reading your book. I, I'm very excited about this conversation and, and to see where it's going to lead today. So thank you for taking the time to join myself and my listeners. Certainly. Yes, the book Escaping from Eden really came out of a period of uh, retreat that I was enjoying in my shipping crate cabin at the end of our driveway in Victoria. And uh, in the book, I talk about a, um, an ultimate Frisbee injury uh, knocking me out for a while, and I, I take time to convalesce, and I do some study while I'm convalescing. And really, the ultimate Frisbee injury is a bit of a metaphor for a couple of times when the universe has gifted me with some time, and I've taken the opportunity to just follow up on some curiosities, some niggling questions. And there were a couple of niggling questions that were on my mind from my more than 30 years in Christian ministry. I've worked as a pastor. I've trained pastors in the interpretation of ancient texts, the Bible in particular. I've been a church doctor, an archdeacon for the Anglican Church. And in all that time, I'd preached many times through the book of Genesis, and like anyone who's read the book of Genesis in the Bible, been puzzled by some odd anomalies and glitches in the text. And I'd always thought, well, I've got to get back to that at some point and just drill down into some of those. And the kind of anomalies I'm talking about are the, the kind that any child would point out. If you sit down with a child's Bible and a child, the child will start asking some very germane questions. Um, why does God say let us make 
Why does he say, let us make the human beings to look like one of us? One of who? And then you get to Genesis 3 and the snake turns up and a child will say, who's the snake? Why did he make the snake? Couldn't he see something was going to go wrong? And couldn't he see Adam and Eve were going to eat that fruit? And why is it the death penalty for eating a piece of fruit? And then you get to Genesis 6 and you've got to explain a genocide, which is the worst crime against humanity. And God's a loving God, isn't he? How does that work? And you don't have to get far before you will have collected a number of questions that at some point you're going to need to go back and develop a better answer than the one you probably just provided. Well, preachers have that struggle all the time. And just like anybody else, we're kept hopelessly busy and never quite have the time to go back and say, hang on, there's something going on there that I haven't quite got my head around. So that was just there, one thing that was lurking in the background. One day I must look at that. And then the opportunity came. But there was another thing that had caught my attention about a decade ago. And that was when uh, Pope Benedict XVI, the most conservative Pope in my lifetime, called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to convene a colloquium, which is a symposium of top scholars and top theologians. And their job was to discuss, they had five days of closed sessions to discuss, and they made it all public what they were talking about. It was about a year lead into this, so we'd all know it was going on. They were discussing the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. Mm. Well, my jaw dropped when I heard about that because it was only 400 years ago, the same institution was burning people at the stake for suggesting that there was intelligent life on other right. planets. So why this sudden flip, relatively sudden flip. And the spokespeople who came out to meet the press and do TV interviews and talk to magazines all around that colloquium were quite emphatic that we need to be ready sooner than anyone anticipates, they kept saying, to embrace a brother or sister alien. And there's one scholar in particular, um, um, I'll remember his name in just a moment, the Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, who is the director of the Vatican Observatory. And he said, look, we shouldn't use the language of alien. We're part of a bigger cosmic family and we shouldn't be surprised to bump into them because they're in the Bible. He said they're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when he said that, I thought, really? Could I have missed that? I've been lecturing on the interpretation of the Bible for 15 years. Could I have missed something as glaring as aliens in the Bible? And so I took it as a bit of a challenge. I felt he'd really laid down the gauntlet to anyone interested in the Bible to go back and ask the question, have I missed something? Are there other kinds of entity roaming around in the text that we've not really acknowledged? Because in... Orthodox Christianity, we think in terms of God, the devil, angels, demons, humans, animal, vegetable, mineral, and nothing else. And here he was saying, no, no, there are other kinds of entity. Um, Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who was the senior officer for the paranormal in the Roman Catholic Church and their lead exorcist, said when people report close encounters, they're not describing a demonic encounter. And it's not a psychological episode. They're reporting a totally different kind of entity, one that merits serious study. Mm -hmm. 
And again, it seemed they were throwing down a gauntlet. Look into this. So when I finally had the time, I thought I would do that. But it was something that had been um, bubbling away at the back of my mind since I was about 11 years old, in fact, because when I was 11, I was very fortunate to be allowed at one of my mum and dad's grown-up <laughs> dinner parties. And from time to time, they'd let my brother Mark and me go to these dinner parties and try and uh, keep up with the adult conversation, which was lots of fun. And they'd pull out all the stops with the food. It would, it would be wonderful. They were great entertainers in that way. And I just remember this particular lunch, it was, when... They were discussing Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, which was really charting at that mm. time. And my ears pricked up because I'd always been a little bit unsatisfied with explanations of who we are and where we've come from. Uh, if I went to um, a religious explanation, such as I might hear at the, at the uh, primary school I went to, it just seemed a lazy answer. Uh, well, God made us. And they didn't seem to be able to explain why we are so obviously an animal and so similar to the other animals if we're this unique special creation by God. But then if I went to the scientific explanation, the only reason we're at the top of the tree uh, in, in terms of the food chain is because of our advanced intelligence mm -hmm. and our mm -hmm. higher consciousness. And science didn't seem to be able to explain where that came from. Because without that... I mean, all the other animals on planet Earth can live quite happily in the wild. Marianne, if you or I were dropped in the wild for three days, three nights, we'd be sick, uh, we'd have passed away or we'd be hospitalized. <laughs> we're not, we don't seem to be very well adapted to the planet unless we have higher intelligence and we've got tools and equipment and technology. And I couldn't find that explanation. Eric von Daniken had pointed this out. It identified this gap that seemed to be a bit of a taboo. I wasn't hearing anybody else admitting that there was a problem in us explaining ourselves. So since the age of 11, that had bothered me. And in all my explorations as a believer over 30 years, the questions he had raised had never quite been answered. Mm. So when I finally had the time for my retreat in my shipping crate cabin, all these things were washing around, and I just sat down with the book of Genesis and a willingness to do some translation work. And as I did that, I realized there's a whole other story hidden in plain sight in the text that speaks of a populated universe and a totally different narrative of human origins to one I'd heard before. Absolutely. When I, I've got, I wrote a number of things down as I was reading your book. Uh, a number of quotes, quotes that you said that really jumped out at me. A couple that I'll share now are, so when Neo takes the red pull in the Matrix, he wakes up to a new world. Everything he thought he knew turns out to have been an illusion and Neo must now find his feet in a new reality and a whole new world of possibilities. And then you go on to say, oh, and the first, that's in the second chapter, in the first chapter, you said, opening my eyes to a plural genesis was like releasing the brake on a roller coaster, and I had no way of knowing where it would take me. And then when I read your quote in the second chapter on Neo, I thought, wow, this must have just been absolutely paradigm shifting for you. 
Yes, it has been paradigm shifting. Um, the paradigm didn't shift all in one go, but there really was a red pill moment mm. for me. And that was to do with this word that gets translated as God uh, quite a lot in the Bible. And it's the word Elohim. Mm. And it's a curious word because it's a plural form word and it takes plural verb forms a lot of the time and then exhibits plural behaviors. So that's all the let us make and in the image and likeness of us. Uh, and then, or in a moment when Abraham says that God told him to go somewhere, he actually says Elohim, plural, told me, plural, to move from or of the child days. And as I started investigating that word, I realized that sometimes it's translated as God, sometimes gods in the plural, or false gods, or demon, or demons, or angels, or even landlords. And, well, it is possible for a word to mean all those different things, but how do the translators decide when it's God and when it's demon? Where, where's all that coming from? And as I investigated that, I realized that right at the beginning of Christian history, there were significant church fathers, people like Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, who argued that the Elohim stories were not really God's stories at all. They weren't talking about God, the Father of Jesus Christ at all. They were talking about something else. And I struggled with this word. I went to all the commentaries to see how they dealt with it, and they sort of all avoided it. And I, the more I saw them avoiding it, the more I thought, this is worth exploring. <laughs> and so the moment came and I thought, all right, I think I'm prepared to accept that Elohim is a plural word. It used to be a plural word and that it's been turned into a God word at a later stage. Let's see what happens to the stories if I read it, reread the text with Elohim in the plural. If you look at the etymology, it means the powerful ones. So let's reread the stories with Elohim translated as the powerful ones and see what happens. Well, of course, the stories change, but they don't change in a random way. As soon as you make that change, the Genesis stories shift and they line up in parallel with stories from the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian texts. Mm. This was not known until the 1800s because we didn't have a translation key on all the cuneiform tablets right. that held the Mesopotamian stories. But once we had that translation key from the Behistun inscription, 1835, discovered by Henry Rawlinson, scholars poured over it and they read those tablets and they thought, wait a minute, that sounds like the story of Adam and Eve. Wait a minute, that sounds like the Garden of Eden. That sounds like the fall. That sounds like the limiting of human life. There's the flood. There's the Tower of Babel. And it became clear during the 1800s that the Genesis stories and further into the Bible, they are summary forms of the ancient Mesopotamian stories, uh, which was a little bit of a controversy at the time. Uh, the idea that the Bible might be based on someone else's book uh, didn't go down very well in some quarters. But even more significant than that, the Mesopotamian versions, the original versions of all those familiar stories are not stories about God. They're stories about our ancestors 
bumping up against a colonizing force from somewhere else, from the stars, another species who turn up and have a hands-on involvement in our evolution as a species. And seeing those parallels, that was the red pill moment. I, I can never go back and read those Elohim stories as God stories because they are not. They are summaries of the stories of the sky people and many of the early Christian leaders knew that and argued for it and they got voted out and excommunicated. But there it was, right in the roots of Christianity. And that was what I was beginning to unearth. So it's a red pill in the sense that I couldn't go back and read it the old way again. But a whole new world really does open up because you realize there are narratives all around the world, indigenous narratives. You go to uh, Australian Aboriginal story. You go to Native American story. You go to Greece. India, West Africa, the Caribbean, Philippines, Norse, go wherever you like, you'll find indigenous narratives that echo these stories. And sometimes the Mesoamerican, especially in very surprising detail. And so for a long time, I'd lived in a world where it was the Bible over and against the world. You know, the Bible saying, this is what really happened. Forget what you hear anywhere else. And Now I'm in a world where all these narratives line up and they're repeating each other and confirming each other, telling us something very interesting about who we are, where we came from, what our place is in the universe, and therefore what our potential is as our potential as a species on planet Earth. That's absolutely, that's absolutely mind-blowing for people who have who uh, I'm struggling for the right words because this is something that I have always known this is knowledge that I have always known from my star people so to have you come out and actually verify for me knowledge that I knew is actually pretty pretty awesome but for people who have never heard this information before or perhaps never looked at it before like this. This is going to take some digesting for some people. Oh, that's very true. That's very true. It's funny, though. I am amazed at how many people I find myself in communication with who have come to this conclusion from Mm. all different kinds of start points. Uh, My start point was from a position of faith and from reading the Bible. Other people will have a totally different start point. They might have an anomalous experience that they've been puzzling over, or they might have been reading some other text, or or something totally different has led them onto this territory. And it's exciting to compare notes and say, well, what first clued you that this was going on? And we share our stories. But um, for those who are from a faith background, I always say, Look, uh, I may have shocked you. This might sound like heresy, but just go back and read the texts again. Try out the exercise that I did. Read the text and see what happens, and you begin to notice the episodes. Genesis 6 is perhaps the best-known moment where human beings seem to be encountering a non-human species. Mm-hmm. Now, just let me look, look that up. But you've also got these passages about the heavenly council, or what I would call the sky council, 
It, it comes up in uh, 1 Kings 22. It comes up in the book of Job. And the picture that's there, even in the current translation of the Bible, is of a council of different kinds of entity who seem all to have a stakeholding in Project Earth. And they're bumping up against each other with regard to how Project Earth should be managed. And often the question that they conflict over is the progress of humanity. How intelligent should human beings be? How conscious should we be? How healthy should we be? How long should we be allowed to live? And often these different entities will pitch human populations against each other to go to war. Well, that whole dynamic, I wonder if anything has ever changed because I look at 2020 and it feels a great deal like that. And I think we're being given a glimpse into um, another dimensional way of understanding what we're all experiencing on planet Earth and why we're experiencing it. And I've come to realize from other sources and from all sorts of first-person report that we are surrounded mm -hmm. by all mm -hmm. kinds of entity with different agendas for humanity. Some seem to like us, love us, be fascinated by us. Others, very indifferent to us, treat us in the way we might treat farm animals. And then other presences that really seem quite malevolent. Treat. Um, we seem to be caught in the crossfire some of the time in the conflicts that that throws up. And actually, you brought a, a really good point up about twenty about twenty twenty and what's happening. I actually put a podcast uh, like a, my thoughts out about what the current situation is in the middle when when it got really bad here in New Zealand, and I said I shared a bit of my knowing. Um, that what's happening is like sort of like a final battle, if you like, because the war in heaven has never ended. The war that, that is talked about in the Bible has never ended. It's been ongoing this whole time. And those that currently control this reality that we live in, who try to keep humanity, the beings that you're talking about, in this state of suppression, in this state of slavery that we are still in, their time is rapidly coming to an end. And, and so they, they are ramping up the fear worldwide because people who are in fear are easy to control. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with everything you just said, Marianne. And I, this is one of the reasons I love world mythology why I love ancestral narratives and indigenous story, because if, and you'll know this, if someone says what you just said on Facebook uh, or in a public conversation, oh, my goodness, you're a crazy. Yeah. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, are you? And you can't have a conversation about it. But if you, if you go to world mythology, go to the ancestral narratives and say, here's a story we're caught in the crossfires of this cosmic struggle. There are hidden powers manipulating human society. They feed off, some of them feed off low vibration, anger, anxiety, and all that. And there is a conflict over how long-lived, how healthy, how intelligent, conscious we should be. And you can point to it in the stories, 
and you can read the stories and the stories will resonate. And if you then say, I wonder if anything has ever really changed, I wonder if that's the truth of what's going on. It's easier for people to join the dots when, when they've come out of 2020, when they've gone into the ancient stories and they begin to feel the truth of it and recognize the patterns, then to say, I wonder if this tells us about 2020, it's easy for people to join the dots. And so that's why I spend so much of my time in Escaping from Eden talking about world mythologies, ancient narratives, because they are there to explain to us the world in which we live. Absolutely, absolutely. Can we go back to, speaking of ancient mythologies, I really love the way that as you go through your, um, and I'm sorry for for sidetracking before, as you go through your narrative of, of the scriptures, you talk about how the snake was introduced, well, who is the snake and what is the snake there for? And and then you talk further on, let me see. Um, okay, then you talk about, you, you talk about how, so you talk about Adam and Eve and you talk about the Garden of Eden. Now, would you like to explain to my listeners your perception of what the Garden of Eden was actually? Yes, yes. I, I picked the title Escaping from Eden as a bit of a tease because you read those words and you think, why would anyone want to escape from Eden? Eden was a paradise, wasn't it? Well, even in the current translation of the Bible, and there's a broad uh, scholarly consensus that the current version came into shape in the 6th century BCE, and that's when the stories were harmonized and monotheized, and these other entities sort of written out of the picture. But even if you read the current translation, um, there are some little clues. So, for instance, when we're introduced to Eden, we are told that it's conveniently close to some key mineral deposits. Well, why on earth are we being told Mm. that? If Eden is this beautiful garden where the human beings can live naked and innocent and just eat all the food that's there and live this idyllic life, who needs minerals? Not the human beings. Mm. And then there's this little verse saying, and then the powerful ones put the human to work. And when you read it in parallel with the Mesopotamian stories, you realize that has a bit of an ominous tone to it. And the suggestion of many who've studied the Mesopotamian stories is that the work was not a bit of light gardening. It was mining, mining for key mineral deposits. Now, in um, southern Africa, the remains of prehistoric gold mines have been found that could be as old as 200,000 years. And not a lot of research has been done on, to, on those, but one has to ask, well, who was around 200,000 years ago to be mining in Southern Africa? Well, contemporary science says that our ancestors were around 200,000 years ago, and that's people of exactly the same design and build as us, but evidently less intelligent, um, not intelligent enough to farm, but intelligent enough to work in someone else's mind and you read it alongside the Mesoamerican story and you've got in the Mayan tradition the Popol Vuh 
says there's a moment when the visiting entities say to each other, let us make um, avatars for ourselves to bring us our food and do the work. And so that stated very, very openly what was going on. Eden is an enclosed area. It's a safe zone where our ancestors were engineered, to use the modern language for it, engineered in stages. It's there in Genesis, it's there in the Popol Vuh, we're engineered in two or three stages, upgrading us, upgrading us, upgrading us. And then the last step is a downgrade. Now this downgrade is reported in the Greek legends, in the Mesoamerican, and it's there in Genesis as well. It's there in Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, where we are brought back down to a level where we can be more easily managed. And that's the story. And there is a conflict. Uh, you see it in Genesis 3 between two factions. How intelligent should the humans be? One character, in the translation we've got now, it's the God character, wants to keep the humans so unintelligent they don't even know they're naked. Yes. And then the snake character says, no, they should be more conscious, more intelligent. They should be a fully-fledged species able to enjoy life. And he affects the upgrade. So in our version, it's a little bit odd that God is against human progress and the snake wants it. But once you retranslate Elohim, you realize what we've actually got is two factions among the powerful ones in a conflict over human intelligence and this character, the snake in Genesis, Enki in the Sumerian stories, breaks rank and affects an upgrade, but then there's all this conflict uh, in the Sky Council over what's happened. Huge conflict. So that's what Eden is. Eden is the place where we were engineered and then uh, ultimately we, uh, we get thrown out of that area. That's the area where the powerful ones reside and we have to go out and fend for ourselves in the big wide world. And so the story begins. That's that is uh, quite powerful knowledge, that is. And it's knowledge that they've wanted suppressed for so, so long. I have always said to people, because I've always spoken my truth about my knowing, and I've always said to people, humans are a created species. They were created as slaves. And that's always been my knowledge. Yes, that's right. And when, I, I think that's absolutely right, and I explore in Escaping from Eden, what, what does that mean that we uh, were downgraded or programmed to be slaves? If you ask the question, what do slave settings look like? Uh, it's not just about being less intelligent. It's about having a fear button that can be pressed. Because if we have a fear button that can be pressed, we can be managed, we can be manipulated, we can have, I mean, the fear of poverty keeps so many of us enslaved to exploitative patterns of employment. Uh, so many people would relate to that right away. You know, if I wasn't afraid of losing my house, there's no way I'd be doing this job, right. would be the thought of so many people in Western civilization. So the fear setting makes us slaves in all kinds of ways. It makes us very prone to tyrannical uh, or autocratic government. And I would suggest we're seeing a little bit of that uh, in 2020. Um, 
There's another aspect that really excites me about this, though, because if, for instance, you read the Mayan account that talks about our downgrading so that we can be managed, what that story says, this is in the Popol Vuh, that our ancestors were upgraded to a point where they were able to do a little bit more than we can, where they could see things beyond their immediate environment. They could remote mm. view. They had things like precognition. Mm. They had better telepathy. Because of all that, they were able to self-heal better than we can. And then all that gets downgraded. Well, the traditions that have curated these stories of our origins have also curated mystical and shamanic practices, all aimed at switching those abilities back on. Right. And the thing that made me rediscover that, because I've always been interested in mysticism, but I rediscovered that and that aspect by probing a topic called acquired savant syndrome. Now, this has nothing to do with mythologies or ancestral narratives. This is contemporary science. And acquired savant syndrome is what happens when a person sustains a brain injury or has a central nervous system event like a stroke or a blow to the head. And when they emerge from the injury, they have extended abilities. They have enhanced cognitive abilities. So just down the road from me, Victoria, Ben McMahon was in a car crash, was in an induced coma for a week. And when he emerged from that, he emerged speaking Mandarin and far better than he'd ever been able to speak it before. Um, there was a guy who was struck by lightning, who all of a sudden had musical abilities he never had before, now writes music and performs concerts. Uh, there was a lady who was an artist who, as her brain was suffering from dementia, all her artistic abilities were lifting and lifting and lifting. And there was a fascinating scientific blind study done on that to confirm that that was what was happening. And when that was studied, as it is by peer-reviewed scientists all around the world, the uh, leader of the project was Dr. Drago, and then I think it was um, Daryl Treffert, um, or the, there are some top scholars studying it. The language they use is fascinating. In that case of the artist, they said, it appears to be a disinhibition of the brain's visual system. Disinhibition? Mm. Well, a lay person hears that and says, what are inhibitors doing in our brains? That by accident they can be switched off and suddenly we're cleverer. That's the pattern of acquired savant syndrome. It's absolutely baffling to our scientists. They can see it happening. They can't explain it. They're very honest in asking the questions. How is it that our brains have advanced cognitive abilities in the off position? Mm. They ask, is it possible to switch them on without a brain injury? And our shamanic traditions, mystical traditions say, yes, it is possible. Here are some methods. And so you've got modalities of controlled conscious breathing. Some cultures have smoke and smoking ceremonies. Some have psychoactive tea ceremonies. They're all aimed at the same thing, switching those inhibitors off to heighten our consciousness so that once again, experiences like remote viewing, precognition, telepathy, self-healing can be part of the human experience. And when you tell people about those practices or acquired savant syndrome, you know, most people 
uh, with a little bit of time to process, will say, do you know, it's funny. Almost everyone has a story they can share, a glimpse of precognition, something they knew was going to happen. They knew who was about to call on the phone. They knew something had just happened to a particular loved one. Um, telepathy. Um, people have extraordinary connections where you know what another person is thinking and you might not even be in the same room or in the same town. Everyone has experienced a glimpse of something that leaves them thinking, I wonder if I could switch that on at will. I wonder if I could develop that. And that's really what the shamanic and mystical traditions are all about. Right. And that's one of the reasons why they've been so persecuted and um, poo-pooed and made illegal. That's quite right. So obviously the purges against witchcraft uh, in medieval Europe would be one example of that. It was very hypocritical, I should say, because at that time, and if you go to the court of Queen Elizabeth I, she was actually hiring people who could do remote viewing, uh, and that was part of the job of uh, MI5, which, which she set up. She set up the beginnings of MI5, and because they couldn't afford to have um, you know, boots on the field in countries all around the world, they desperately wanted to develop remote viewing technology. Um, people laugh when they read about, uh, if they read the book, uh, Many Stare at Goats. Yes. Uh, they're invited to laugh at uh, American defence trying to nurture these things. But actually, all governments around the world have been trying to nurture that for 500 years. That's how seriously they take it. But they'll invest serious money in it. And I do think that in some of the archived works, you think about the suppressed Gnostic Gospels and some of the other suppressed texts through the generations. I think they were suppressed because there was a suspicion all these things were possible and the powers that be didn't want a general population that was too hard to manage. I mean, it goes back to that. Exactly. That was too confident, that could see through too many things. So that story of the, uh, the genetic engineers and the Popol Vuh downgrading us so that we could manage, that is a perpetually relevant story explaining to us what's going on. But I am encouraged to think that the suppressed traditions, the shamanic and mystical traditions, esoteric traditions, they have a way of surviving. And that knowledge has a way of remaining in the folklore uh, or in esoteric societies, passed on from one generation to the next, so that the potential is there in every generation to wake up and for us to live a more conscious, more empowered life. That's absolutely correct. That is just, you just have to know, you just have to have the keys to be able to see. And your book really provides people with keys that are going to be so important. And I don't know if you're aware of this, um, Paul, but just in the past couple of days, the New York Times released an article saying that US has ships that are not of this world. Yes, there have been some really interesting disclosures this year and last year, and it represents a huge shift in policy mm. because in 1947, following the Roswell crash, and there have been a couple of other incidents, President Truman signed the National Security Act, 
which classified all official UFO research. Mm -hmm. And so from that moment on, there was um, no public acknowledgement of UFOs or ET encounters. The policy was silence and debunking. And ridicule. Until 2019, when the US Navy was allowed to disclose that it had been engaging with UFOs or UAPs, as we call them today, and naval officials were allowed to talk to the press and make this acknowledgement. Now, I don't know why that wasn't bigger news because it was a huge shift in policy after 72 years. Then in the same year, we had Luis Elizondo going public and saying the Pentagon has had a unit whose job is to investigate materials retrieved from what may be UFO crashes. And that department has existed all this time. Well, that was a huge admission that there, there are real materials and that there'd been a cover-up. But now we're talking about it. This is huge. The Pentagon, for goodness sake. And now this year, 2020, we've got Eric Davis, an astrophysicist who has briefed American Department of Defense as recently as March 2020 regarding materials retrieved from what was the phrase? Off-world off vehicles. He is great. Which is a very funny phrase, off-world He means UFOs. He means ET craft. And there it is. He's not been debunked. Um, the government has not distanced itself from those remarks. There's a drip, drip, drip of disclosure going on to let us know that we're not alone in the universe and that some of the entities who share this space with us are technological species just like ourselves and have technology that might be helpful to us. I was clued that this was going on by Edgar Dean Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. And I think if anyone goes on YouTube and watches everything they can find by Ed Mitchell, they'll quickly realize that a man of greater integrity and honesty you could scarcely wish to find. And he was very emphatic in calling on the American government to declassify what was going on, to acknowledge the materials and the technology that we have that could benefit the whole of humanity, that could end our slavery to um, the oil corporations and give us free energy. He was motivated by that, what it could mean for humanity, he was also motivated by honoring families who'd been silenced during that 72 year period of silence and debunking and threatened by US military with death threats down the generations of their families should they ever talk about what they saw. And when I heard him speaking about that and realizing here is a man who is bound by all sorts of layers of official secrets as is everyone involved with the Apollo and Mercury missions, if he can say that, if that's what he's allowed to say, it makes it very significant. What is he not allowed to say? If he's allowed to say that, I'm going to take it seriously. And he says anyone who's skeptical about um, our being in a populated universe, anyone who's skeptical about the UFO phenomenon, study the law, he says, L-O-R-E, surrounding crash retrievals. And that is what Eric Davis Lewis Elizondo are talking about publicly now in 2019 and 2020. And I'd say the same. If, you, if you're not sure, if you're skeptical, just go down that rabbit hole. 
just to follow up on information about retrieved materials from off-world vehicles, and that might be your red pill. Very, very cool. Very cool. And, of course, I find the timing of their release of this information typical. They release it while people are preoccupied with the COVID situation. So people aren't going to pay so much attention to it. So actually, when they start introducing star people, they're going to say, but we told you that these were yes. real back in. <laughs> That's exactly what they're going to do. Exactly. And I had that feeling about the um, the Pontifical Academy of Sciences back in 2009. They're saying this so that when a disclosure is made by another authority or something obvious happens, they can say, oh, don't you remember we talked about Great. this? There's no issue. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. It's the same. But it's funny they do it now because there are a lot of people locked down at home with nothing to do other than Google or go on YouTube. So it's a perfect time for a lot of people to take note and just follow up on what they're hearing from the Pentagon, Louis Elizondo, Eric Davis, go and search up on Ed Mitchell and everyone's desperate for entertainment. Well, take some time over that and uh, open up your world. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was told... The release of the slow disclosure that they've been releasing over the over the past years is not by chance. I was told by my star people back in 1985 that the world governments were told that they had to release this knowledge to humanity or it would be taken out of their hands. Well, yes, I can well believe that. I think... The, you know, there are groups who are very um, passionate, as Ed Mitchell was, in petitioning for disclosure and declassification. Um, they're not happy with this policy of silence over the ET presence around planet Earth. But I think that some of the struggle over that is not just the political struggle. The political struggle, obviously, is um, what happens if we tell people not just in terms of would it panic people, but how would they feel about their governments, knowing that they have been, um, had things hidden Mm -hmm. from them that are so significant and that they've been lied to in such a significant way. I think that's the political aspect, the uncertainty of it. But I think there's a conflict in that Sky Council over this question as well. The conflict is that... that the American government made an agreement with beings that are not the beings who have our best interest at heart. And so they are sort of caught between a rock and a hard place at this point in time. Yes, that that rings true. I'm a great fan of Star Trek. And uh, in Star Trek, uh, in the Star Trek universe, you've got the United Federation of Planets, which uh, has created a league among most of the civilizations out there in the universe. And then every so often they'll come, come across a, a rogue civilization uh, and have some adventures. But the United Federation of Planets are guided by something called the Prime Directive. Mm-hmm. And the Prime mm-hmm. Directive says that if you turn up to a planet where the population is pre-spacefaring, you cannot announce your presence and let them know what's going on. You've just got to let them develop. 
Well, I do think that there are beings, races, species in the universe who... Oh, no, you froze. And then you've got others who just turn up and say, oh, this is a useful planet. I think we can get some good stuff out of this planet or this species. And there's the conflict. And can they police each other? And I think my sense is there's a bit of a breaking down of the balance of power in that equation. And I think that the drip, drip of disclosure um, is because at some point the cat is going to be out of the bag. And in some way, governments have to be ahead of that game. But I'm aware that we're not the only players. We're not the only ones who make the call here that there is this other community, Ed Mitchell spoke about this, a community of spacefaring civilizations was the language he used. And there is a bit of a tussle going on over the question of disclosure. That's my impression. It's more about freeing humanity from the chains that currently bind them. Oh, amen to that. That's what it's about. That's my understanding. And the team that I have worked with since time immemorial, would be the ones that would be regarded as the snake in the garden. Yes, it's really, it's funny. This really confuses people because uh, of the way the edit has gone in Genesis. That story in Genesis 3 is told of God versus the snake and the snake is equated with the devil. Mm. Uh, So this really confuses people who begin in the book of Genesis. But if you begin in the Sumerian story, Um, the upgrader is not the devil. The upgrader is not the enemy of humankind. The character Enki is actually more affectionately related to the human race and and wants something better for us. And bit by bit, I've had to realize that, that snake narratives around the world are not necessarily demonic narratives or devil narratives and that that symbolism is very often used for a faction and a presence that is about helping more conscious, be more aware, take our place in the community of species that we share the universe with. Right. And actually, going back, back, we've kind of gone all over the place, but going back to your book (laughs) and to the legends, I was particularly impressed with the Zulu. Oh, I love the Zulu legend of Unkulunkulu. When I started looking at the question of human origins with regard to contemporary science, I was blown away to discover how many eminent figures in DNA research hold to the view that life on Earth did not originate on Earth, that it came from somewhere else. And they proposed this theory called panspermia. And the idea of panspermia is that the genetic coding for sentient life uh, has been disseminated throughout the cosmos. And that when it lands on a hospitable planet, basically it means a planet with water, it will generate forms of life similar to what we're familiar with on planet Earth. <clears throat> so you have people like Maxima Kulov and Vladimir Sherbach, who are at the cutting edge of DNA research and research of the human genome. You've got people like Carl Sagan back in the 1960s arguing for this. Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, 
arguing for this. This theory of panspermia, life being sent through the cosmos, is a nuts and bolts version of what Plato wrote about 2,500 years ago. The Zulu legend has a wonderfully cinematic version of that. And their explanation is that life on Earth arrived from outer space. And they have this story that talks about these seed pods landing on planet Earth with all different forms of life, plant life, uh, life for the waters, the oceans, and then life for the land, and then the first human, who is Unkulunkulu. And it's a, such a beautiful graphic description of these seed pods with these life forms maturing, and then the seed pods pop open, and out they come, and they found their niches on planet Earth. Well, when I first read that, first of all, I thought that's a really interesting story for ancient Zulu people to have. Why would you think that life on Earth has come from outer space? What on Earth would you see looking around um, the wildlife of Africa to suggest that to you? It's, it's not something that would naturally occur to the imagination. Also, when I read it, I thought, I've seen this in so many movies. Stasis pods, uh, arcs in space, um, Matrix cryogenic freezing, taking forms of life into other parts of the universe so they can seed another planet. Why do we keep telling that story? Why is it in so many movies? Why is it in so many cultures? Why is it in the Zulu culture? And I believe that it's a memory that has survived. That's a story that's told from generation to generation, even if it never becomes the official narrative, never gets into our textbooks, never acknowledged by government as this is what happened. It's part of the human story that has survived. And it's a way of telling the truth of who we are. When I, when I uh, read that, I thought, well, you know, and here are these Zulu people, these people away from so-called civilization. They've retained this knowledge and it's pretty amazing. And then I thought of also, when I was reading about the pods, I thought of how they actually formed human, what humans grew in initially. Yes. Yes, that's right. When you go back to these uh, ancient mythologies, with the question in your mind, were we genetically engineered, you start realizing that if some ancient ancestor had to describe what they saw in a lab, mm -hmm. <laughs> they would reach for the kind of metaphors that you hear in uh, narratives from culture to culture. So whether you're looking at a stasis pod that's described as a seed pod, or whether you're talking about um, human life being engineered from some kind of clay, or whether you're talking about a fusion of uh, blood of the sky people with the bodies of the earth people, it begins to make sense. And you realize that we've got descriptions of genetic engineering in very earthy terms being given to us. And it makes sense in a way that is quite different, but more coherent than perhaps some of our older 
ways of reading these stories, where we've read it as pure metaphor or mm. pure poetry. Mm. We've tried to read them as moral stories. But really, you try and turn them into moral stories, the morality that emerges from them is pretty <laughs> odd. I come to the view that uh, ancient ancestral narratives, our world mythologies, are vehicles of memory. And so when I come to these stories, that's the question I come with. I, I, I don't read it as in a fundamentalist way where every detail, that's exactly how it was, that's exactly what happened. And I certainly don't read it as a moral fable. I ask the question, what, why has this been written? What memory is this carrying? That's a really good question. That's a really good way of looking at it. And it also explains, if looking at, at the Old Testament, the Genesis text as a historical document rather than a biblical docu document, how the Nephilim were able to be developed because you couldn't have a human woman giving birth to a giant like that. It's just not possible. It's not physically possible. Yes. Now, that's the best-known episode in the Bible um, in terms of the story of human ET hybridization. Mm. Uh, when you try and talk about that in the modern world, it's, it's too far out there. It just sounds too fantastical for people to want to do business with. And yet, people who read the Bible know a story of human ET hybridization, and it is the one in Genesis 6, the one where the Bene Elohim, the ones like the powerful ones, take human girls, hybridize with them, and produce the Nephilim. And what's interesting is these other entities are compatible with us sufficiently that we can interbreed or hybridize, but they're different enough that the offspring are very different. They are what the Greeks called the Titans, or the Bible calls the Nephilim. And you get to historians uh, around the year dot, people like the Jewish historian Josephus, and they talk about that story, and he draws a parallel with the Greek stories, and then he says, this is the explanation of why there are giants in our day. It was very concrete and very real uh, when Josephus was writing. It hadn't been pushed into the zone of myth and fairy tale. Right, right. and there are um, stories, whispers that there have been bones of giants found. Um, apparently the Smithsonian was supposed to have had some, but they were destroyed or removed or something like that. Well, I think some of the most interesting finds uh, are often archived. Yeah. It's the polite word. Yes, very, very polite. <laughs> but it, the giants is fascinating because there were lots of finds in the 1800s um, particularly in America, of uh, giant humanoid skeletons. And those finds continue to this day. But uh, they were openly reported in the newspapers when they discovered them. Some of them very, very odd. that They did not fit with the simple linear story of human evolution. We couldn't fit them on, on the map. And there's a fascinating moment when uh, President Abraham Lincoln acknowledges the giant people who used to live on these lands. I can't remember where he was speaking. Uh, I think it was near Niagara when he was um, making this speech. So at that time, it was uncontroversial to say there were giants in these lands. We don't really know anything about them. 
they've all been archived somewhere, yes, very possibly at the Smithsonian, and yet today in the 21st century, people are embarrassed to acknowledge mm -hmm. that there were these finds and that we can't fit them on the map of humanity. I'm hoping that will change because in the last decade, so many new humanoid species have been dug up. Um, I'm thinking of the Denisovans as uh, one example, or is it Homo floriensis? I can never get that name right. The Hobbits of Indonesia. Right. And I think there is more acknowledgement that there was a great diversity of human or human-like beings on the planet in the ancient past, and perhaps that allows us to say, and yes, some of them were very, very big. Mm -hmm. And also, speaking of diversity of species, there are those ones that were found in Peru, is it, with the elongated skulls? The Paracas skulls, one. yes. Absolutely fascinating. Now, uh, they have been DNA tested, mm -hmm. And, and we're told that, uh, that they are human. But they are human of a form we're not familiar with. That skull shape, we're not familiar with. They have, is it two parietal plates instead of three? So it's a differently structured skull to ours. The brain capacity is larger than ours. At first, there was conversation, was this head binding? Mm -hmm that had created these head shapes. And then they worked out, no, it couldn't be that because of the parietal plates, because of the volume of the, of the brain. Um, all we could say is we don't know who they are, but then there's an interesting PS to that, that skull shape. It raises questions about human history. Why are there cultures who practice skull binding to try and get their kids' heads into that shape? Who were they that we were trying to look like them? Mm. And then you look at um, depictions of ancient rulers over ancient Egypt, for example, mm. and you'll see these funny head shapes. And then you'll see headgear that is designed either to hide the head shape or to make it look like you've got that head right. shape. Right. And then that regal dress, a bit like the Pope's mitre, seems to repeat in cultures around the world. So that's a great mystery. Why is a long skull the skull of a ruler? Why do we want to look like them? And who were they? Because we don't see them wandering around today. You know, when people um, look at the stories of the, uh, the sky people in the Mesopotamian stories, the Anunnaki, as they're known, um, some might say, if that's a real story, if there really were Elohim or powerful ones wandering around governing human society in the past, why haven't we dug up any remains? Um, well, the question is, how would you know if you dug one up? How different do they have to look? And what would you expect to find in the DNA if you DNA tested them? I'm intrigued by this because we did have the opportunity to test um, the Sumerian story in 2003, when it appears we discovered the tomb of King Gilgamesh, mm. who, according to the Sumerian story, was a hybrid being, more, more even than we are. He was a hybrid of the sky people and the humans. He is the subject of the most ancient story that we have. Uh, we have it in written form from the cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia. 
it seems his tomb was discovered by York Fassbinder in 2003. As soon as the Allied forces were in Iraq, mm. uh, a unit went with him so that he could uncover this site, and then everything went silent. Mm. We haven't investigated any further, apparently, okay. in the 17 years since. The obvious thing to do is, is there anything there that we can DNA test? Now, my guess is, if it's gone silent, they tested and they didn't want to tell us what they found. Correct. Uh, I think any other scenario, they'd be talking about mm. it. That, that's the logic of it. So I do think there may be material evidence, not only of a very diverse human population, but of colonizers who were not human. Mm. And I suspect that there are authorities that have that data but who were not sharing it. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. I'm 100%. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Wow. So this has been a really ongoing journey for you. So you 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 did all this research. You wrote your fantastic book, Escape from Eden. Escaping from Eden? Sorry, Escaping from Eden. Es escaping from Eden. And it led you down this path, and it's really opened opened different doors for you that possibly you may not have gone down before. How has it affected your personal belief in a higher being? Yes, that is one of the things it's taken me a while to process. The first thing it does is it removes a really ugly aspect of Judaism and Christianity, which is of a violent and immoral mm. God. Every preacher knows there's this problem. If you believe in a God of love, if you believe that Jesus shows us what God is like, you immediately have a problem with the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that report God doing awful, violent, genocidal mm. things. Often mm. he is deeply unforgiving and unpredictable, and it doesn't make sense. Once you pluralize Elohim, you realize we're blaming God for things that alien colonizers were doing. It wasn't God doing the things at all. So my first response was a sigh of relief. Oh, my goodness, God is better than I thought he was. And then I started rediscovering Jesus in a fresh way. Oh, Jesus is better than I thought he was because this whole narrative of control, worship and obedience, heaven and hell, it, it's, it's a false framework. Right. And it comes from the 6th century BCE when those scriptures were all uh, drafted in a time of us versus them, where the people of Israel were imprisoned by the Babylonians and they, they took out everything from their tradition that they had in common with the Babylonians and the Babylonians would be eternally punished and the people of Israel would be eternally vindicated. That's the framework that set up the us and them, heaven and hell, obedience versus sin, all those binaries that turn religion into quite an unpleasant, controlling thing. So I was began to be relieved of that. And then I had to say, well, what is, what's the real story here? I went back to those church fathers who said the Elohim stories are not proper God stories. And I saw where they were coming from. They were, if you read between the lines, essentially suggesting Let's not have an Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures and the Apostolic Writings. It should be an Old Testament of Plato. 
Plato gives us a really good understanding of what's going on. He illuminates those old stories, and he's a wonderful preparation for what Jesus was on about. And so I thought, gee, I need to read up on Plato. These, these guys were clearly onto something. What was it? So I read up on Plato, his book Phaedo, his book Timaeus and Critias, and I discovered, to my great surprise, here's this guy who any philosopher would acknowledge Plato as the foundation of Western mm. thought. Uh, no one could deny his importance and the brilliance of his work, and yet there are aspects of it they quietly sideline. It's a little bit embarrassing because he talks about an ET intervention in our evolution as a species, other entities he called children of mm. God, turning up somewhere else and upgrading our ancestors for greater consciousness, greater intelligence. He also speaks about another entity, the craftsman, who's responsible for forming the, um, the world, the cosmos, the solar system that we're familiar with. And these are all entities separate to God. When he gets to God, his language is really, really interesting. And it begins to sound like quantum. When he talks about God, he's talking about the source of all things. And for him, the source of all things was a unified field of love and consciousness. Well, quantum is beginning to tell us that consciousness is the prime organizing principle of the universe. We used to think it was time. Then we thought it was light. Quantum is saying, no, it's consciousness. Plato said the same thing 2,500 years ago. And this unified field of love, consciousness, intelligence, harmony, then exploded or fractalized into the material universe. He argues beautifully uh, from things we all observe on the basis of logic. He says the material universe came into being in order for that primordial consciousness to experience itself and express itself. And so the great question that's upon the whole universe is, can love, consciousness, harmony, intelligence exist in a universe like this? Can we do love, consciousness, as a society of individual beings exercising free choice? The picture he gives of the human life cycle is that we begin as consciousness, an aspect of the divine consciousness, the source consciousness. Then we individuate and incarnate as human beings, and we wrestle with these questions on planet Earth. And then we pass away and we return to that unified consciousness. That's how Plato describes the human journey. I read that and I thought, that sounds familiar. That sounds like a lot of Eastern thought. If I go to Buddhism or Hinduism, that sounds familiar. But then if I go to John's Gospel, it's there too, because that's how the life story of Jesus is described in the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then at the end of the Gospel, Jesus is praying to the Source, who he calls Father, and he says, and now I'm returning to you back to the glory we enjoyed before the foundation of the world. Well, what if Jesus there is the model for all of us? It tells me that we are intimately connected with God. 
we are all emanations of God. We're all expressions of that source consciousness. Our connection could not be closer than it is. And you begin to realize that the story of us being separated from God and needing religion to fix it is really mm -hmm. false. That uh, spirituality is really about discovering the connection that we have. Every single human being on the planet it's not about being spiritual or religious. Every human being is an expression of this source consciousness. And the more we discover that, the more conscious we can be, then the more wonderful and exciting a life and more confident a life we can live while we're on planet Earth. So that's how my view has shifted. I see it as very rooted in the Jesus story, um, but it's a far more open, exciting God is closer than I'd ever imagined and closer to everyone else. And it takes away all the uh, anxiety and pressure and control that often comes with a more religious viewpoint. That's really awesome. That's really awesome that you've come to that understanding. And the beings that I work with, that is the goal, actually, <laughs> that humanity will come to that understanding for themselves so that they can break off the controls and the fear that's been bred into them. Yes, absolutely. And see, this is wonderful because the conversation we're now having, you've come to this awareness through tuning in to other consciousness, through hearing from other entities, and through your experiences, this has shaped your worldview. I've come to this uh, through reading texts, to reading Genesis, and yet we've arrived at the same realisation, and now we can compare notes. So I love this kind of conversation. It's awesome, isn't it? And it's like I always say to members of my group and to people, there are many ways to climb the mountain. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And so it, it was very, very exciting for me to be able to talk to you about your learning and your discovering and how this has altered your way of thinking and your way of looking things and of course I can imagine that this hasn't endeared you to a lot of more traditional um, um, what's the correct word um, traditional religious viewpoint people who have traditional viewpoints well it's it's funny I was um, expect, expecting more of a backlash mm on Escaping from Eden. And sure enough, if you go uh, onto my channel on YouTube, the Paul Wallace channel, or if you go onto the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube, you will hear comments from people who are coming from a conservative or a fundamentalist uh, religious background. And they'll come in and they'll say, oh, this is rubbish. You don't know anything. Go and read your Bible. This is heresy. This is, um, this is satanic delusion. And all this really strong language. But, you know, about maybe even 90% of the time when I go back and say, hi, thanks for your comment, uh, the reason I'm saying this is this, this, and this, 90% of the time the person will come back and say, oh, I see what you're saying. Actually, I'd always wondered about that. And then we get into a conversation. It's only a very small proportion who actually can't have a conversation about this. There will be many others, of course, who aren't watching the Paul Wallace channel or, or the Fifth Kind right. TV, who might find it very challenging. But I've been really encouraged by the number of um, believers of different religions and clergy and pastors 
and academic theologians who have engaged really, really positively and said, thank you for tackling this. And many have said, I'm so relieved to hear this being spoken about in this way because I've long struggled with this or I've long suspected this or I've had this belief and I couldn't talk about it in my church or I've just retired from the ministry and I've now got a bit more time to think about these things and I think you're onto something. Wow. So there's been far more positive feedback of that kind and, and what I love to hear is from people who said, I've been so conflicted over this. I couldn't work out how my belief in God tied in with these experiences that I've had, or I couldn't work out how to explain myself to my believing family, or I've always been on the edge of faith because I couldn't square the circle, and you've shown me a different way of resolving things. And I love hearing that because for many people, it is a weight off their shoulders mm to realize that things they have experienced are real. They don't have to be ashamed of them because they don't fit into the conventional story. And to be told, actually, there is heaps in the old, old stories that validates what you've just told me. Um, when I've had people come to me and say, my experiences tell me I've been part of some kind of a hybridization program. I've never told anyone except my mum. Uh, and I can say, yeah, it sounds out there, but that story is ages old. You can find it in every culture. You can find it in the Bible. You can find it from the southernmost tip of South Africa all up the western seaboard of Africa into the Caribbean, Brazil, Philippines, Greece, the Norse cultures, the Celtic culture. They have all talked about what you're telling me now. And again, it's a huge relief for people to think I'm not crazy. Yeah. This is real and humanity has known about this for a long, long time. Mm. It's just that it hasn't been acknowledged and a great taboo has been put on it so that people can't talk. And I've heard so much since Escaping from Eden was published, people coming to me, sending me emails, talking to me through Skype. It comes so frequently every week, some weeks, every day, I'll hear from people who've had experiences and encounters that they haven't been able to talk about, but they're talking to me about it. It's so frequent that I now think that there would not be a family anywhere that if they gathered the family and sat down and said, has any of us ever experienced anything we couldn't explain? Every family would have a story. Mm. Many families would have stories that relate to the fact that we are not alone in this universe. Correct. And it's been my understanding, certainly of, of the team that I work with, that they follow families through mm. generations. Yes, they do. I've learned that. I've learned that since writing Escaping from Eden. It'll be there in the sequel that I'm writing on uh, writing right now. But I've learned that from the people who've contacted me. And so I've always learned to ask, um, did your parents experience anything like this? And sometimes they'll say, yes. And sometimes they'll say, I don't think so. And then a week later, they'll say, oh, my dad's finally told me what happened to him when he was 15. And they realize, yes, family lines are observed. And uh, a lot of the time, the observation is quite benign, other than people have experienced things that they can't explain or can't talk about. 
not always, but a lot of the time. And I think this is why it's so important to lift the taboo, because if parents could tell their children, I had this experience, and the child can say, oh, I've had the same experience. Right. You know, when I have people coming back to me a week later saying, oh, my dad's finally told me, you know, often these people who've gone to their parents are in their 60s. Yes. And they've lived all this time struggling with this thing that happened to them, not knowing that dad could tell them mm. something that would reassure them and make them feel not so weird yeah. and not so isolated. Yeah, it's pretty sad, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it can be sad. I'm thrilled when I find other families where I was talking to a guy the other day who had an abduction uh, and hybridization experience and he, he didn't know who to tell. Mm. Uh, so he told his mum. And his mom was able to say, all right, let me tell you some things that happened mm. to me. And the relief that that was for that young man, he's, he's in his 30s, mm. um, was enormous. And it, it's such a strength to them to be able to compare notes with one another. Because in our society, it's still very hard to know who can I tell this mm. to who won't suggest that I be hospitalised. And that's one of the reasons why I've always been so open and one of the reasons why I actually started this podcast so that those out there would not feel so alone. Definitely. It's so yeah. important. And I love the breadth of material that you cover in your podcast, Marianne. It's, it's wonderful. And, you know, if people are struggling with what, what to watch during this lockdown, they should come to your website. <laughs> They all your podcasts because there are so many things you can study there. And again, I reckon, you know, if you actually sat a whole family down around your website, there'd be someone saying, oh, I want to look at that one because of this experience I had or because of what my friends said, you know, some months ago. It relates to that. Yeah. And they are all different aspects of opening up the world in which we live and showing us that far more is going on than we acknowledge or talk about. And it, it's a far more exciting and interesting universe than ever we've been told. Absolutely. And we're living in very exciting times, very exciting times. I call it the end game. This is where we're at. We're at the end game now. The end game of all the secrecy of all humanity being a slave species. We're at the end game. Humanity, my star people told me back in the 80s game that humanity had to reach a certain point in their spiritual awakening before they could become part of the greater intergalactic communities. And we reached that point about 18 months ago, something like that there was an energetic shift, a whole shift, and I knew that we had reached that point. And from that time on, things escalated. I agree. I absolutely agree. I had no awareness of that when I started writing Escaping from Eden. And then uh, when I started promoting it and uh, doing interviews, people started saying this to me. Oh, you've timed this really well, let's say, because there's a great waking up going on. And... Um, now I'm thinking that's true because I'm discovering people in all quarters of all ages who are waking up in a remarkable way to what's going on and who we are and what the hope might be for the future. And isn't that exciting? That's it's very exciting. 
So tell us before we finish, Paul, and I, I'm so grateful for your time today. I've really absolutely enjoyed this conversation and I was I was so looking forward to it. What is your upcoming book about? Well, the upcoming book uh, it follows on from Escaping from Eden and just goes into some greater depth uh, regarding the, the sources of the ancient stories and then the credibility of contemporary science, there's more first-person report as I've had contact with people who are really at the, the coalface in terms of access to materials, physical materials, uh, access to experiences. And so there's more of that kind of material in the book. But at the same time, it's a gateway mm. book. That it's a book that you could give to anyone, Escaping from Edens like this. You could give it to someone with a zero interest or a zero belief in this territory, and it would take that reader on a journey. By the end of the book, they'll say, oh, there's something real here that I need to do business with. And so the sequel will do the same, but it will also take further everyone who's read Escaping from Eden. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited. I can't wait for it to come out. How far away do you think we're looking at, Paul? I'm aiming at spring of next year. Awesome. Well, that's not that far away. No, it's not actually. that far away. So keep your eye on uh, my website, which is paulantonywallace.com. Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulantonywallace.com. Go to the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. Go to fifthkind.tv. That's our website. Or you can find the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube. And that will keep you up to date with the things we're looking into. Uh, you'll find out when the new book uh, is ready to be pre-ordered. And uh, I'm releasing documentaries all the time that share bits and pieces of this material. And for, for my listeners, I will have links to all of these on this episode's page on our podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. So you can... Uh, go visit these sites from there so you don't have to worry about not writing it down it, it will all be there available for you so thank you so much oh paul do you have any other social media like are you on instagram are you on twitter i'm not on twitter and i need to uh, i need to develop my insta page so it's i am on facebook you can find me there paul anthony wallace uh and the the website paulantonywallace.com that's cool. I'll link those and I'll also put those links on our featured guest page so visitors to the website can find them from there as well as this episode's page. So thank you so much for your time, Paul. I've, I've just absolutely had a wonderful time with you and, and maybe I can get, when your next book comes out, we can return and for another visit. I'd really like that. Oh, Marianne, thanks so much for having me on your show today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I love the podcast that you do. And yes, absolutely, we must have another conversation. This episode for some, especially for my listeners who may be of the Christian religion, may be challenging in some respects. There will be many people who will outright dismiss what Paul had to say, but at the same time, I feel that there will be many, many more who will actually go back, study and look at these religious texts with a totally different perspective. At the very least, 
Paul's words will make you think and perhaps question what you have always known as our reality to have been. That, in my opinion, is not in the least a bad thing. For me, this conversation with Paul was incredibly validating on a very human level. To have my own personal known as talk to me from my star people friends verified by a very human source from a very human perspective, that was pretty nice to hear. I've never doubted the truth of what was taught to me from them. It's always resonated within my soul as truth, plain and simple. These are very exciting times that we're living in. Humanity as a species is on the cusp of true freedom. As a species, we have never, ever had freedom. Only the scant illusion of choice presented to us so we are not aware of how deeply we have been controlled and are controlled. But more and more people are waking to the knowing that all is not as it appears and that things need to be different. The world needs to be different. We are indeed in the end game and the prospect for humanity emerging from this as an uncontrolled free species is becoming brighter and brighter by the day. With every single person who at the least begins to question the status quo, who begins to question what the world's authorities, our governments and world or multinational organisations put out for us to absorb and take as being gospel. We are one step closer to true freedom as a developing species. And for you, my listener, listening to this episode, it is food for thought, is it not? bumper music for this episode is called Breaking Gravity from Cody Martin and is available from Soundstripe Music Licensing, my favourite music licensing site and the one I've used for all this season's episodes. If you're needing some good music for a video or any purpose, if you use this coupon, Walk With Me, you'll get at least a 10% discount on their monthly or yearly licence fees, which are affordable for small broadcasters otherwise. I wouldn't be able to use them. Great variety of music and easy to find what genre or mood you're looking for. Check them out. www.soundstripe.com Don't forget to use the code WALKWITHME for your discount. If you have any suggestions for topics you might like me to cover in upcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to contact me. Or if any of you have any questions, suggestions or any comments that you'd like to make or experiences that you might like to share with myself or my audience. Or if you feel you might be a good fit as a guest on my podcast, then just email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com or check out the Be A Guest page on the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. Check out our Facebook page, Walk in the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating, and don't be shy to leave a written review 
on your chosen podcasting platform or on the podcast Facebook page, Walk in the Shadowlands. And of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms, iHeartRadio as well and Pandora. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words, Open Walk in the Shadowlands, and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thank you so much for listening today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. 